Please open your Bibles to Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. Is the sound okay? Yes. Philippians chapter 2. I want to invite you to stand up if you can. And the reason I ask you to stand up is out of reverence, respect. If you have ever been to a court, the courtroom, as soon as the judge walks in, what happens? Arise. The authority. And here is God's Word. It's God Himself speaking to us. So let's read starting in verse 1 of Philippians chapter 2. Here is the Word of the Lord. So if there is any comfort in Christ, any consolation from love, any fellowship or communion from the Holy Spirit, any affection and compassion, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord in one mind. Do nothing, nothing from selfish ambition, nothing from vainglory, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind in you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with him a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a slave, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that's above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord for the glory of God the Father. Please be seated. It was Martin Luther who said, the, the Holy Scriptures require a humble reader who shows reverence and fear towards the Word of God. And, and this humble heart will constantly cry, Teach me, teach me, teach me, O Lord. The Holy Spirit resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So, Lord, we humble ourselves and we cry out. We join our voices and say, teach us, teach us, teach us. We know nothing apart from you and apart from your grace and your power. We are nothing. So I pray that you would help us this morning. Holy Spirit, you do the work that no man can do. Saving, sanctifying, changing. Help us. Open our ears. I pray that my heart, my mind, my words would be deeply connected to your mind, to your word. Help me to be faithful. That's the only thing I desire, Lord, to be faithful. And my prayer is that we all here would leave this place, would get out of here, loving you more, treasuring you more, desiring to honor you more. That's our desire, Lord. So fill our hearts, empower our hands and our feet to serve you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. I don't know. I think few of you, if any, have ever heard about Archibald Thomas Robertson, A.T. Robertson, a very famous professor of New Testament, a very famous Greek scholar. Uh, in 1885, he moved to Louisville, Kentucky, to attend the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. In 1888, he received his Master's of Theology and he started working as a teaching assistant for John Broadus. 
John Broaders is famous for being one of the presidents of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. And those who, who know about preaching, he has a very famous book on preaching. Uh, A.T. Robertson, he married, he ended up marrying Broaders, his professor, his daughter, Ella. So, in 1894, they got married and they had five children together. When Broaders died in 1895, Robertson became Souders' professor of New Testament interpretation, a position that he held for 39 years. And he's famous for his publications, many books. I just brought two to show you. He's famous for his, very famous for his Greek grammar in the New Testament, used even today. Uh, here's one commentary in Philippians that I use. So he's considered one of America's greatest biblical Greek scholar. But I mention him because if you go to the Cave Hill Cemetery, and if you go there to the gravesite, you will see a beautiful monument for John Broadus. There is this beautiful gravesite built in honor of John Broadus. And I remember listening to Kent Hills, and he was saying how he was looking for A.T. Robertson's, because he was his favorite professor, Greek professor. So he's looking for, and he said that A.T. Robertson's gravesite, the stone, was just a little tiny stone right by Broadus' beautiful monument. And the reason was that he requested that he wanted to be buried in the shadows of his mentor and father-in-law, John Broadus. Even though he's more famous than him, said, bury me in the shadows of my mentor. Here we see a clear example of do nothing from selfish ambition or vainglory, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. And it's this type of humility that Paul is dealing with here in Philippians, and that's the type of humility that will preserve a church. So let's go to Philippians. We know we have been walking through this beautiful letter. The context is very clear. The music of unity keeps playing here. We saw that Paul dealt with the threatening, the threatening aspect of persecution in relation to the unity inside of the church in chapter 1, verses 27 through 30. So verses 27 through 30 of chapter 1, it's Paul talking about the importance of the church standing together in unity when they're going through external persecution. Because it's very easy once the persecution comes, the external persecution to come for us to do what? I'm going to take care of my life, my family, see you guys later. And Paul is saying, no, no, no. Once the persecution from outside comes, it, it actually got to unite you, cause you guys to be stronger together. And then he moves to the threat of this unity inside the church, and that's our own hearts. This unity is always the product of sinful behavior. And that's what Paul is dealing here. One scholar says, these verses in Philippians bring us the strongest possible appeal or exhortation for Christian unity. The kind of exhortation that many Christians seem prone not to take very seriously today. And the reason why we don't take that very seriously is because we don't understand the gravity of unity in the church. That Christ died, He shed His blood to purchase and provide the unity of His people. 
We ought to take very seriously these warnings, these exhortations here. So, so here we come. Here's the outline. And the, the, the reason I'm showing you the outline is, is I hope as you are studying your Bibles at home, you can see the flow of thought and maybe, hopefully... One day you will be teaching others, teaching your family. And if you're going through this, you, you can see, you can learn just what Paul is doing, how he's writing. And you see in verse 1, the grounds of church unity. Then in verse 2, the nature of church unity. What church unity looks like. And now we are working through the preservation of church unity. That's verses 3 through 4. And we saw last Sunday that to preserve the unity of the church, there are some attitudes, some behaviors, some actions that must be Put off, put to death, and today we're going to look at the opposite. The attitudes and behaviors that must be put on, vivified. So, briefly, I just want to review here with you so it's all fresh in your minds. Look at verse 1. That's the ground of church unity. Since there is comfort in Christ, our union with Christ, consolation from love with God the Father, the communion, the fellowship of the Spirit, affection and compassion. And Paul is just laying the foundation here. That's why I can demand you to preserve the unity because it has already been given to you by the work of the Trinity. Father, Son and Holy Spirit. They have given you the unity through the work of Christ. And then Paul deals with what unity looks like in the church. So the nature of church unity. Verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, one soul, one mind. Very important the way that Paul structures here. He goes straight to the heart. He requires a unity of what? You remember the two words? Unity of conviction and unity of affection. Unity of conviction, unity of affection. We need both. And you see how Paul shows that church unity must touch the deepest parts of our, our redeemed humanity. Thought, affection, feelings, allegiance, all these things must be touched by our unity in the church. So we saw that, and, and now we come to the preservation of church unity. We see that church unity is given by the triune God, and at the same time, even though it's a gift, yet God commands us to do what? Preserve, keep that unity. And that's what we see in Ephesians. It's very clear in Ephesians. Paul says, I therefore, one in chains for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. And that's the call of salvation, the call from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. And look how he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, Bearing with one another in love, eager, zealous, eager to do what? Create the unity? Produce the unity? Is that what Paul is saying? Be eager to create the unity of the church. Is that what Paul is saying? No. Why? He has already been given to us. Eager to maintain, to keep the unity that was given to us. Each member in, in, in your local church... Every Christian, he has the duty, the responsibility to do what? Be eager, zealous to maintain the unity of the church. How many people you know that profess to be Christians and they care less about the unity of the church? When was the last time you talked to a Christian and you asked, Hey, 
Have you been eager and zealous to maintain the unity of your local church? I like what Frank Thuman says. He says, The two-sided nature of the paradox shows, however, that God both holds us responsible for the unity He commands and refuses to give us any credit for achieving it. That's how it always It has to be like that. All glory to God, all blame to whom? To us. Amen? All glory to God and all blame is ours. And if you have a hard time with that, you have a hard time with the perfect and holy and beautiful God He is. He's so beautiful, so holy, so righteous, so perfect that everything He does is good and righteous. Therefore, He takes all the glory. So, Paul is, Paul is going to show us how to maintain, how to keep the unity in our local church. And it's beautiful how He orchestrates, how He... He puts the, the sentences together, his ideas here. And you see, Paul says, nothing, not one thing from selfishness, nothing from vainglory, but in humility. Not looking to your own things, but looking to the things of others. So, so that's how Paul structures here. And you see that the heart of preserving church unity is humility. Church unity can only be preserved through humility. And this humility is visible. Humility is not something that you cannot see. Humility is visible. Visible through actions. And this humility will be visible through actions of putting off and putting on. Mortifying and vivifying. We are, we saw that in Philippians 1.1. Do you remember how he, how he addresses the Philippians? To the saints to the holy ones in Philippi. So there is a position, because they are in Christ, who is the holy one, they are holy ones. But at the same time, Paul is going to tell them to do what? You've got to walk in holiness. You need to move forward with holiness and sanctification. So that's important for us to understand. Yes, we are righteous. We are holy positionally in Christ. But we have a journey we are being transformed into the image of Christ, to the likeness of Christ. That's called sanctification. It's this process where we are growing more and more into the likeness of Christ. And this process of growing to more and more the likeness of Christ requires, requires from us daily to remove the Adamic garments and put on the garments of Christ. So look how Paul says, Romans chapter 13, 14. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Just like a garment. Put on. You all came here dressed and I praise the Lord for that. Thank you. But we all must every morning put on Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4. That same chapter that Paul is talking about unity. Verses 20 through 24 and then verse 31. Assuming that you have heard about Him and you were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus. Look at that. To put off your old self which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires. And then he says, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on, you see, put off, put on the new self created after the, after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Then Paul says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander to do what? Be put away, mortify from you, along with all malice. Anybody here, you don't need to raise your hand. Anybody here had some sinful anger 
yesterday, today, malice, rancor. And Paul says, uh-uh, you've got to mortify these things. In Colossians, that's a beautiful passage. And here we see all these metaphors of dressing, putting to death. Paul says, put to death. You can say, mortify, put to death. Therefore, what is earthly in you, what is endemic in you, the leftover from Adam in us, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of this, the wrath of God is coming. But now you must put them all away. Not some. Don't cultivate some. Put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk, dirty jokes from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practice and have put on the new self. You see, there is a positional. You already have the garments of Christ. You are in Christ. And then he says, put on then. You already have these garments, but you've got to keep dressing every single day. Put on them as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. The unity of the church can only be maintained through a humility that requires from us this daily, this daily mortification of sins and the vivification of Christ-like habits. We need to do that every single day. Is there a day in the week that you can say, I don't need to put anything to death today? Every single day, there are things we need to remove some garments and put on new garments. Every single morning. And we need to do that to keep the unity in the church. So we saw, Paul tells us, what are some of the things we need to put to death? That we need to mortify the, the, the Adamic garments, those garments from Adam that we need to remove every single day in order to keep the unity in the church. So we see in verse 3 and 4, he says, Do nothing from selfishness or selfish ambition and nothing from vainglory. And then he says, one more, three things here that Paul places his finger. Look at that. He says, we all need to put these things to death, brothers and sisters. Selfishness. Has anybody here who does not suffer of selfishness? We all suffer of selfishness. That's, that's sin. The DNA of sin is being selfish. I want to be like God. Do you remember? Eve, Adam, better than God. So, first thing that Paul puts his finger as a doctor, he says, mm, selfishness. We need to remove that from our hearts. And then, not only selfishness, vainglory. Everything's about my glory. And then the other thing, the third thing, verse 4, he says, what? Your eyes. We need to remove the, those Adamic eyes. The, 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 eyes from, the eyes from Adam that's always looking to ourselves. And we need to put Jesus' eyes that's always looking to the interest of others. That's what Paul is doing here. So we saw that last Lord's Day. I'm not going to spend more time here. But Paul, as a wonderful teacher he is, he not only tells us what we must put to death, but there are things that we must vivify. It's not enough just to remove those garments. You need to... Right? It's one thing you have stinky, filthy, nasty garments. It's not, a, it's not enough to remove those garments. Amen? You need to put new garments. And that's what Paul is doing here. So he says, Do nothing... From selfishness and nothing from vainglory or conceit, 
But, what is this but? A contrast. Here's the contrast. But, in humility, count one another more significant than yourselves. And humility is the key word here. One scholar says that uh, this is the linchpin that guarantees the success of the Christian community. So what is this humility that Paul is talking about here? And I'm going to help you first think through the word. The word humility. The Greek word tapeno frosune. Tapeno frosune. A long word because it's composed of two words. Tapenos, lo, frosune, Fronel, we have been seeing this, this word throughout Philippians, the mind, the thinking. We could translate as lowly thinking. A.T. Robertson says lowliness of thinking and conveys the concept that you have a low conviction about how awesome and important you are. Right? Sin makes me think so highly of myself. It's all about me. And humility is the opposite. It's not seeing yourself as this God. So, let me help with what humility is not, first of all. So, I have two things of humility is not, and that's important. Sometimes we start with the negative. Because I, I can ask, what is humility? But it's important for us to think, first of all, what humility is not. And, and humility, first of all, is not a denial of reality and diver diversity in the church. That's very important. Humility is not a denial of reality and diversity in the church. And what do I mean by that? I cannot say, oh, let me get David, fantastic piano keyboard player. Humility is not for him to say, Guga, you play much better than I do. That's lie. So humility is not denying reality. Oh man, David saying, Dan, I play guitar, you play guitar better than I do. That's just lie. Dan doesn't play guitar better than David. The other David here. We have all these musicians in the church. Alright, now let me get another example. Luke. Humility is not Luke to say, Oh, Rick. Rick does a much better job painting than I do. That's, that's not humility. There is a diversity. Don't make this face, Rick. <laughs> humility has this diversity in the church. It would be ridiculous for me to say, oh, Jesse knows much more Greek and Hebrew than I do. Right? That's not humility. You can have humility and recognize that God has gifted you with ability and knowledge in areas that others do not have. It's like me saying that I know more about research than Brian Ray. That's ridiculous. You know, it's just in order to elevate Brian, I, I'm going to be humble here, you know. It's like, no, no, you never, you got to be conscious that that's the beautiful thing of the church, that there are people who have greater knowledge in certain areas. They have better gifts than you in different areas. And that's what makes the body so beautiful. Likewise, thinking poorly of yourself doesn't mean you are humble. In fact, self-deprecation can be a subtle species of pride. Second, humility is not primarily related to constitutional or natural temperament and personality. So, some people are calm by nature. Some people are spineless by nature. That doesn't mean that they're humble. That doesn't mean that there's humility there. I, I, I remember this morning, Miss, Mr. Milk Toast, 
there are some personalities, some temperaments, and that doesn't mean that this person is humble. Because you can be very quiet and yet have awesome thoughts about yourself inside your minds and hearts. So, we see that the Greek word tapenos frosune is connected to the mind, heart, not external temperament. I think, I think it's interesting Paul's example because Paul was a bold man. He would speak out loud. He would confront people. He created chaos in Ephesus by preaching the streets. And yet, he tells the elders in Ephesus when he's bringing a summary of his ministry, he says, you are witness of how I served you with what? Humility and tears. Wait a second, Paul. You just created... You turn this whole town upside down, proclaiming the exclusivity of Christ Jesus. And yet, you have the audacity to say that your ministry is marked by you and this other man with you that was marked by humility. So we see that humility is not primarily or at all connected to the constitutional or natural temperament and personalities. So what is humility here? And, And the context is very important. As we see how Paul is defining humility... And where he places the word, we see that the two sentences which follow show that the resolution, humility is the resolution to subject oneself to others and to be more concerned about their welfare than one's own. I like how Dennis Johnson says, he says, Humility is not an unrealistic, dour, we had a discussion last night about this word, dour or doer. Look at D.C., David, he doer. That's the, the British way of saying. Because, we, yeah, we had a big discussion at home. Because I thought there was dour. And then I googled to see, and it says doer. And then I told Rachel, doer. And she's like, don't say that. <laughs> and Bella this morning in the car, she said, don't say dour, daddy. Don't say doer, daddy. Say dour. So, just so you know, this word caused trouble last night. So, dower, doer, however you want. Okay, so humility is not an unrealistic dower, doer, inferiority complex, which at bottom is a self-centered, as glib pride is. It is rather a readiness to forget oneself and to exalt others, both with respect and with concern. It's to have the grace of the Holy Spirit so, so turn our hearts inside out that we eagerly honor and care for others as we instinctively do for ourselves. That's the humility that Paul is talking about here. And that's the humility that's required to keep unity in the church. It was C.S. Lewis who said, Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself what? Less. And we ought to have a lower conviction of ourselves in order to keep unity in the church there is no way there is no way to keep unity when people are thinking so highly of themselves not willing to put others above themselves so paul is going to show us here how this humility is manifested because look how he says do nothing from selfishness or vainglory but in humility and here he explains how this humility is manifested count one another more significant than yourselves So instead of using your mind to think so highly of yourself and how precious you are and how wonderful you are 
And all your needs must be met. You are to use your mind. The word count there is very important. Count. Calculate. It, it requires a, a thinking about things. So you get a calculator, you get, okay, my desires, uh, Jesse's desires, equals Jesse's. I'm putting others. I'm counting others. That's what Paul is talking about here. Humility. Let me see if I have. Yes, the other word. It's to engage your mind and heart in a way that you start value and esteeming all the members of the church as surpassing in value and greatness above yourself. Can you imagine? I was thinking about, can you imagine if each member would come to church having this mindset? Imagine every day, every Saturday night, every Sunday morning, the one thing in your mind is, how can I esteem and value each one as more important than myself? Can you see fights happening when people have this mindset? How can I value my brothers and sisters as more important, more significant than myself? And then Paul says, he gives another example of how humility will be manifested. Look at verse 4. Not looking to your own interests, but also to the interests of each other. We saw this word. I don't know if I have here. No. I think I gave you last Lord's Day. Scopel. To consider. To regard one's aim. It's like you're aiming at the other's needs and interests and things. Think about if you're hunting and, and you see your animal and you are aiming and you have all your focus and your attention aiming at the animal. And that's exactly what we need to do with one another. Aiming all my attention and focus to see the interest of my brothers and sisters. One scholar says, What Paul is calling for is a Christian concern that's wide enough to include others in its scope. When each member of the Christian community exercises this mutual concern, problems of disunity quickly disappear. And I say, Amen. Amen. One lexicon, the Luanita, the, the lexicon says the following about this word here, escopel, to exert, to exercise effort in continually acquiring information regarding some matter with the implication of concern as to how to respond appropriately. Exercising, to exercise this attitude of always aiming and checking, analyzing my brothers' and sisters' needs and interests and things. And let me tell you, nobody's born with this skill. Actually, we are born with the opposite skill of aiming at our own things. But when Jesus comes and the gospel takes hold of our hearts and changes our hearts, now we have the power and the ability to be aiming at others' needs and interests. And that's a skill that we must excel and develop and grow every single day, week, month, year of our lives. Excelling, growing, developing this skill of stop looking at your own interests, my pain, my feelings, and you start looking at the interests of others. How to develop this skill? Listen to people. Sometimes we need to close our mouth and just listen to people. Watch people. Ask people. Go out with your brothers and sisters. 
Serve people. Pay attention to one another. And here's the challenge. Think about the most annoying or obnoxious brother or sister that you have in Christ. And do that. Do that. We all have brothers and sisters that get on our nerves. And now train the skill of, how can I be looking to the interest of this person here? We need to develop. Let the gospel permeate your heart so deeply that you can say, Do you know what, brother? Do you know what, sister? That's actually what is in my best interest. But since it's in the best interest of you, I say, Amen. No, Guga, that's so hard. It is impossible apart from Christ, apart from the gospel. With Christ, all things are possible. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. And Paul is not talking about benching press 400 pounds. Paul is not talking about making money. He's not talking about passing an exam. It's about being in Christ. And you can do these things that He's requiring because of your union with Christ. So instead of thinking how this is going to affect me, my schedule, my likes, my desires, my family, my plans, my dislikes, I'm thinking, what is the best for the rest of the congregation? That's humility. It's practical. It's very practical. Yeah, honestly, honestly, with all honesty, I'm not denying reality. That's not the easiest thing for me. That's not the most comfortable thing for me. That's not what I was wanting. But hey, in light of the fact that's the best for the whole congregation, amen, let it be. When it comes to liturgy of the church, some of the songs and hymns that we sing, oh, I hate the hymn. You might hate the hymn, but maybe a sister loves the hymn. Some of the instruments that we play. I hate the drums. What if some of your brothers and sisters love the drums? And we can use the drums in a way that glorifies God in our singing. Electric guitar. My things. My interests. I hate that. I don't like that. Have you thought about others? Unless you give me a biblical text where it forbids us of having these things. The place we meet. I abhor this place. We meet at a gym. So profane. Yeah, but that's the only place you can meet. And some people are very happy here. So let's humble ourselves and build up the unity of the church. The version of the English Bible that's used. I can't believe he used the NIV. I can't believe that he used the ESV. Stop, that's preference. Maybe some people love the NIV. Some people love the, the King James. And we, we, we can talk. We can, in a godly way, argue why you prefer one translation over another. We don't break the unity of the church because of my interests. The Bible study we are going through, the traditions that we carry in our church, the way we celebrate the Lord's Supper, the time of our meetings, how we do the midweek meetings that we have, how one of the elders leads the service or preaches, the desire for children's ministry during the service. Just imagine if before... You start arguing, getting upset, complaining about these things. These verses would come into your mind and say, In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Don't look at your own interests, but look at the interests of others. Can you imagine if we start living like that? How glorious, how beautiful, how majestic it becomes more and more. Not only the church, but our homes. So many fights in our homes is what? My interest, no humility, parents arguing, children arguing, lack of counting others above yourself. And let me tell you, that's a necessary garment for the unity of the church. Humility, this type of humility that considers others as superior to me 
that looks at the interests of others in the church family is vital and crucial for the existence of unity. Without this humility, there is no unity. That's what Paul says. That's the first thing that he requires when he's talking about keeping the unity of the church. We saw that in Ephesians 4. With all humility. Same Greek word here. With all humility. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul says that we must, as God's chosen people, holy ones, beloved, we need to put on. Those are the garments we must wear every single day. Compassionate hearts, kindness, and here it is. Tapena frasune. Humility. Look what Peter says, 1 Peter 5, 5. Peter says, clothe yourselves. Who? Some of you? All of you. All of you. Sometimes it's tempting for us to be listening to a sermon about humility and say, I wish so-and-so was listening. I hope so-and-so is paying attention to this sermon. All of you. Clothe yourselves with humility. We all need that garment. All of us, every single member, it doesn't matter whether you're old or young, spiritually mature or spiritually immature, a new believer, an old believer, rich or poor, shy or outgoing, rich or poor, sick or healthy, male or female, every single member of the church, every single morning, every single hour, every day, ought to clothe himself with what? The garment of humility. And the way that Peter puts here, clothe yourselves with humility. The word that he's using is just like, takes us back. It's automatic. If you read that in in Greek, automatic takes you to John chapter 13. And remember when Jesus places a towel around his waist and he behaves like what? A slave washing the feet of some of his most obnoxious friends. Clothe yourselves. Get the apron put around your waist to wash other people's feet. And notice, that's important, the emphasis on one another, each other, one another. And that shows us that humility is never something that stays in the closet. It's so, how often you feel humble before the Lord in your private devotions? So many times I'm reading the scriptures, I'm praying in my office, I'm in my knees, I'm crying, I'm humbled. But humility cannot just remain there. It's so easy to remain there, but humility gotta be gotta be manifested with one another, with each other. A person who profess or you, you think that person is humble, full of humility, but has no life in a local church, has no accountability, that person cannot prove anything about humility. True humility is manifested in a life in community. So you see, count one another, look to the interests of each other, clothe yourselves with humility towards one another. That's life in the local church. Showing the work of Christ in our lives towards one another. And just last, a last point here about humility. Humility was a despised virtue. In ancient times and in present times, humility is not prized. It is prized in the Christian community. Amen? We know how humility is important. Humility is cherished. Humility is prized among Christians. But it's important for you to know that humility had no value whatsoever during the time that the Bible was written. And I would say today too. One scholar says, In the pagan world, however, humility was regarded as a base disposition, appropriate to slaves, belonging to slaves. Why? Because the slave was the one who had to be looking to the interest of others. 
A slave had no right to be looking to his own interests. So you see that even the language of humility is a language of what? Slavery. Another scholar says, No self-respecting Roman citizen should show such a low view of his own significance. Now imagine in Philippi where they all boasted of their Roman citizenship. And all Paul says, no, 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 no. In the kingdom of God, humility is what counts. And they know that God's ways are not man's ways. And probably you have in your mind passages in the Bible where God promises to do what? Lift up the humble and put down who? The proud. Because God's ways are not man's ways. And all the humility of the Bible is personified, incarnated in one man. Who? Jesus Christ. He can say, Take my my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble, lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Humility became a Christian virtue. That's very important. Humility is a Christian virtue. True humility is a Christian virtue. You don't find outside Christianity. Because what is humility? You look at Christ. Christ is the emblem of humility. One scholar says, Thus humility, as Paul understands it and advocates, it's an attitude inspired by the example of Christ. It's therefore specifically Christian. An attitude of mutual love within the church. The antithesis of pride. The antithesis of pride, self-conceit. And selfishness. Humility comes and grows and excels in our lives the more we look to whom? To Christ. was Martin Lloyd-Jones. A wonderful story. He says, A friend was asking me the other day, How can I be humble, Dr. Lloyd-Jones? I said, I have no method or technique. If I tell you to do something, pretty soon you're going to be arrogant by doing those things. There is only one way to be humble. And that's to look into the face of Jesus Christ. You cannot be anything else when you see Him. You look at Him, you realize who He is and what He has done, and you are humbled. And that's exactly what Paul is going to do in the next few verses. What is he going to do? Philippians chapter 2, verses 5-11. through 11. Who is in the spotlight? Christ. Look to Christ. Behold Christ. Behold His humility. And you will be able to walk in His humility. So, we are not only to maintain unity through humility, but we are to excel in maintaining. we got to always grow. I would say, yes, I, I love the unity that we have been keeping in this church. But we've got to always excel. That's the Christian life. Always excelling, growing in these virtues. So, my prayer is that every day, all of us, each one of us, would put on the garments of humility. Let us remember Christ, the towel around His waist, putting on humility, and do that. And sometimes we think that this type of humility is for superheroes. Oh, this lifestyle is just for a very small group of Christians. Actually not. That's for every Christian. Do you remember what Peter says? All of you. Not some. Just the elders. Or just a, a, a small group called saints. No, all of you. All the members, all Christians must clothe themselves with humility. This type of humility here. And I'll finish quoting Dennis Johnson. He says, it's beautiful how he writes. I could not do better. That's why I'm quoting him. He says, the others embracing, others serving mindset of Christ is so unnatural to our self-preserving instincts. 
Yet, when God's grace grasps us deeply, it begins to develop into our deepest, strongest desire. We begin to care for all our brothers and sisters in Christ with the same passion and intensity that we so automatically and easily lavished on our own comforts and concerns. We learn to give as much weight to their opinion as to we do to our own opinions. We start feeling their disappointments and pains and grief as intensely as we do our own. We put their needs before our own. It says, such counterintuitive humility is the prerequisite to a profound Christian unity that can weather the storms of external opposition and internal disagreements. It's the fountain from which flows a oneness of conviction and affection that gives joy to Paul's heart and gives glory to Jesus. But how can our hearts be turned inside out to love self, selflessly like this? It's not a matter of teeth-gritted discipline, ruthlessly suppressing our every, our every selfish thought that only breeds further, he says, further resentment against those whom we are called to love and resentment towards the God who demands such a natural affection. And he says, the only solution is to have our hearts overwhelmed with wonder at the fact that we have received such unnatural, supernatural, selfless love from the Creator of the universe. The triune God who pours out His manifold grace on us in encouragement, love, comfort, partnership, and tender compassion. Therefore, Paul opens his summons to unity through humility with this irresistible, irrefutable rationale. Only when we are overwhelmed with the grace of God in our lives, only when we are overwhelmed with the mercy of God in our lives, only when our eyes are not looking to ourselves, but we are looking to Christ, to Christ's people, that we are able to walk in humility, that we will preserve the unity of the church. So my prayer is that we will excel more and more in dressing ourselves with garments of humility every single day, looking to the cross, looking to Christ, going to Christ. That, that, think about what he says. Come to me. He says, come to me. All you were burdened. I will give you rest. And then he explains why. Because I'm humble. What does he mean? We just saw. Because I'm not looking at my own interests, but I'm looking at your interests. Come to me. I will serve you. I will love you. I will care for you. I'm not looking just at my own interests. That's, that's why he says, come to me. I will give you rest because I'm humble. It's not all about me. It's about my love towards you. That's the gospel. And Lord, we stand in awe that the Creator of the universe would humble Himself, become a man, not only a man, but a slave, an obedient slave, and die, the undying one, the eternal one, taking the form of a son of Adam and dying on our behalf. Who are we, Lord, to have a high conviction of ourselves. Who are we to think highly of ourselves? So I pray for our church that this church be a church clothed with the garment of humility. Lord, we praise You. We thank You for the unity we have. It's beautiful. It's charming. It is a sweet aroma. But we know the dangers. We know the, 
the evils in our own hearts and the need for Your grace and Your mercy, the need of Your Holy Spirit to empower us every single day. So we thank You and we ask for Your help, Lord. Help us to look to Jesus. Help our eyes to be on Christ. Help us to encourage one another to look to Christ. When one of our brothers and sisters comes with a complaint, or if we come to complain to a, another brother and sister, and, and help us, all of us, to say, let, let us look to Christ. Let us behold Christ in Him crucified. Help us to dress one another with humility, Lord. Sometimes, many times, many times, we need a brother or sister to come and help us to put on this garment. So be kind to us, Lord, as You have been. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.